0: The brain injury can affect them physically. They can have twitches. They can have things going on at their face. They can have things going on at their feet. It can affect them cognitively, thought processing, memory. It can affect their speech. It can affect them forgetting words. It can affect them not completing tasks. And then emotionally, crying, personality changes. The reason I'm glad we're doing this podcast and this interview is to bring awareness really to lawyers because I don't think a lot of lawyers take the time to really investigate whether it's there or not.
1: Welcome to the Tip the Scales podcast, where we discuss running and growing your law firm. I'm your host, Maria Monroy, president and co-founder of LawRank. Today, I am recording live from New York City with Jay Vaughn, Jay and I talked primarily about traumatic brain injury cases. This is something that he's really passionate about. He gave us a lot of good information as far as what you guys should be asking your clients to determine if there might be a TBI case and what kind of technology should be used to make sure that your clients are diagnosed properly. I don't know if you guys know this, we do have a video component because we record live, typically at conferences, and you can find the video on YouTube or on Spotify. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Well, thank you for joining me.
0: Thank you for having me. This is exciting.
1: Tell us your name, what firm you're from, and then just a little bit of history as to how you got started.
0: My name is Jay Vaughn. I'm a lawyer in Louisville, Kentucky. My law firm's Hendy, Johnson, Vaughn, Emery. I've been practicing a little over 20 years. How I got started is kind of an interesting story. I was in college, and I just switched. I started out as a double major, in math and computer science, like really hard, geeky stuff. That I had this epiphany one day, going, "Why am I doing this?" And switched to communications from my in like a public speaking class. And the professor recommended I go out for the speech and debate team, so I did. And then that process of doing debate in college it got me interested in maybe the law. A friend of my parents son played tennis with a guy whose dad was a lawyer and got me an interview and i was 20 years old and they hired me the summer for my junior year of college as a law clerk making like seven bucks an hour but was a blue collar pi firm criminal like divorce but i worked for the uh, personal injury side and worked there all through college the only law school i applied to was law school from my hometown up in northern kentucky where the law firm was clerked all through law school so when i graduated i had been at that firm five years and just knew when I started law school, I wanted to be a personal injury lawyer. All my classmates were like laughing. All, you know, They wanted to work for the big defense firms in downtown Cincinnati. And they're like, what do you want to do? I was like, I want to be a plaintiff trial lawyer. And everyone snickered and stuff. And,
1: and who makes more money now?
0: Oh, there's no question. <laughs> they're not laughing at me anymore.
1: <laughs> uh, I always think it's funny how there's that weird thing with PI.
0: In law school, we're seen as the redhead stepchild, right? You want to do PI. And that's, you know, they. so I would... I'd be out practicing and I'd see lawyers that I graduated law school with, or maybe a year ahead of me that were toward the top of the class and they're working still at that same big firm in Cincinnati. And all they're doing is, you know, working their butt off late at night weekends to get their billable hours and just miserable and, and doing what we do. If you do it the right way, you have the right approach. You have the right mindset. It's rewarding. It's fun. And I mean, I just love what we do.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you can definitely change. You are changing people's lives. Absolutely. So I I don't know. I wonder if one day people are going to be like, oh, wait, maybe we should all be going into PI. It'll be too late by then.
0: Hopefully if that happens, it's toward the end when I'm retiring. So don't have... I
1: don't don't know that people's (laughs) egos will let them. And this is, it's so funny because this whole thing, this perception has been caused by billboards. It's just that. It's this idea of like, oh, if you're willing to do a billboard and put your face on a billboard, oh, no, that's beneath me. That's not a real lawyer. It's like, well, okay, but not everyone's a billboard lawyer, one. There's nothing wrong with – you guys know that I am a big fan of billboards. And we primarily work with trial lawyers, and they're always like, absolutely not, Will not put my face on a billboard. And I'm like, why? Like, you will help more people that way. If, like, the end goal is to help people – that's one way to get more people to help. Right. Right. But yeah, I find that whole thing fascinating.
0: It is. It's it's the, you know, it's p- people see the billboards and they just think that, you know, it's interesting that most of the clients see the billboards and they just think, well, that's not a firm I can hire. Um, you know, they're just making fun of the whole process. They're just in this, the lawyers for money. And most of the clients we have, you know, the first time you ever talk to them, they always say, well, this isn't about the money. It's like, well, you know, to be fair, you know, we're here to help, but if it's not about the money. I can't help you because that's all I can do, right? I can't, you know, there's, there, I, I can't put this injury back. I can't bring your loved one back, but we can through the court system, through this system of justice we have, you know. We can get some form of accountability. The only way that happens is through some form of of compensation, some form of money. But that's the best way we can get that company to acknowledge it is them paying for what they did. So when you have talks with clients and when clients leave, when you finish their case and they're thankful and they're grateful and they're leaving you reviews, what you're doing is helping them see that there's a need for what we do. Um, They have a totally different Mindset now, totally different appreciation for lawyers that do personal injury, and I think the same thing happens with, you know, those of us that truly try cases, the personal injury lawyers that are willing to take a case to trial, stand up in front of a jury, and present the evidence, tell the client's story. Those jurors are now getting exposed; they're getting the best form of advertising, best form of marketing to understand and education to say. This is a great system we have. And they leave, never had your leave, not having a bare appreciation for what we do.
1: Do you think that some people are turned off by the billboards?
0: I think there are people that still say, I will never call someone that has a billboard or that I see commercials on TV. I think that's when they then go and dig deeper and they try to then research in the internet. They go through social media sites. They do word of mouth. They ask their boss. They ask their neighbor. They ask their cousin. They ask their, you know, someone else they know and try to get experiences and say, hey, have you ever worked with a lawyer? Sometimes they get referred to or told, hey, even though it's a billboard, even though it's, it's a commercial that firm's good. Call them. They know what they're doing. Other times they get to firms like me. We don't have billboards. We don't do commercials. Most of our cases are word of mouth referrals from other lawyers, but they do the research, they do the due diligence and they get to someone like me and whatever their process is, whether it's a billboard, whether it's a commercial, whether it's internet, whether it's a referral, something, at least they have a call to action, decide I need to reach out. I need help. And that's ultimately what's there is them realizing there are people to help and they can do it.
1: What type of cases do you specialize in?
0: Most of my cases are either trucking cases, commercial motor vehicles, trucks, buses, dump trucks, things like that, and traumatic brain injury.
1: TBI must be tough.
0: It is. Despite all the advances in medicine, despite all the advances in awareness, whether it's movies, documentaries, stuff with NFL and all in CTE, there's still this stigma and this just Disbelief that someone has a brain injury or that's claiming a brain injury actually is brain injured I see it all the time from defense lawyers and insurance companies That just think my clients are faking
1: But do they really think that or are they just using it as an excuse because it's Somewhat intangible
0: great question. I think it's both. I think there are some that are just skeptical and think that if you can walk and you can talk and you can work and you can drive a car You don't have a brain injury. It's all in your mind, and you're just doing it for money. And there truly is that belief. I've seen it from defense lawyers. Case I just resolved. That's what they did to my client, blamed her, had surveillance on her. Had
1: surveillance on her?
0: Yeah, they hire a private investigator to follow her around with his cell phone, while she's buying soap at a soap store with a friend, while she's at the grocery with her husband, while she's at the hardware store with her husband, when she's sitting down at Mexican restaurant eating lunch, just following her around for hours and hours and hours for months and months and months.
1: That's unbelievable.
0: On brain injury cases, they will surveil your client.
1: I didn't know this. Oh gosh, yeah. Is this like a common practice?
0: It is. So
1: do you have to tell the client like, hey, just so you know, don't freak out if you see someone following you around and be aware that this is happening.
0: Especially in cases where the defendant is a big company, whether it's a premises case and it's a bad fall or something fell, merchandise fell on your client's head or especially truck cases, they always get surveillance.
1: I can't believe I didn't know this.
0: Once they find out that the claim is brain injury, like it's just, you know, as lawyers, we have our systems, we have our ticklers, we have our, our standard procedures. And like their checklist is once there's a brain injury claim, let's go get surveillance.
1: How do you go about these TBI cases?
0: Most of the time I, I get the cases I'm being brought in late by another lawyer. I've been fortunate on a few to get the call directly and, and get in early, but the process is the same. I have to spend time with the client, hopefully in person. Sometimes by Zoom, depends where they're located, because I handle cases all over the country. So I have you know brain injury cases and trucking cases now in states other than where I'm licensed. I'm licensed in Kentucky and Ohio. So sometimes it has to be an initial Zoom or a phone call till we can arrange a trip to where I can go see them. But it's having a long talk with them, not really with an agenda, just and not with a, a form or a questionnaire, just me talking to them as a human saying, tell me what's going on. What, what are you experiencing? Have you noticed any changes? How's your energy level? How's your, how's your memory? How's your speech? Have you had other people that you care about or work with that you encounter, you know, tell you things or ask you questions? You know, how's it going with your doctors? And it's just a long interview of what their background is, what their education was, what their work history is. But with that, usually the best evidence in our cases for brain injuries, especially, is talking to people that aren't your client. Family's good. The more removed from family is better. Give you an example. There's a gentleman I represent now. It's a a brain injury case pending in Las Vegas, and he's in his mid-late 50s. And spoken with his wife, spoken with his daughter, but he had retired from a really good job in a correctional facility. He worked in the Department of Corrections somewhere and gave me a list of 20 names, which is pretty rare. Usually clients, when asked for names, have to stay on them for months and months. And they give me like two people. I got a list of like 20 people that weren't family. And when you're talking to these individuals, they... Immediately say, here's what Maria was like before. She was outgoing, she was energetic, always on the move, always organized. Since this happened, she sleeps in all the time, she misses appointments. We're talking, she forgets what we just talked about. And you start to get little vignettes, little stories, you know, two, three stories from each person. And you have five, eight, 10, 15 people that aren't related to your client in their own way, and their own interaction, their own relationship with your client, have seen the changes, it's extremely powerful, more than what a doctor can tell you, more than what a medical record shows. And when you come to proving the case and talking to juries, they don't want your client on the stand complaining. They don't want your client saying, I can't do this and I can't do that because they're whining and they're saying, woe is me, or they're just saying it to try to get money from the jury.
1: Dude, we're such assholes as
0: humans. It's crazy. It's crazy. But You know, if you put your client up and your client has a story of strength, has a story of being a hero, has a story of fighting through and pushing through and saying, I'm going to do the best I can. Then you put up five, six, seven, eight witnesses of people who have no skin in the game, have no interest in the outcome, telling the jurors story after story, real, real and true stories. The defense can't do anything with it. They can't cross it. Well, they do, and they look like assholes. But that's the approach is what evidence can I get from humans because when we're at trial, it's all about a human story. What can we tell? What can we really show is happening? On top of that, like what else do we do is there's stuff with medicine, there's stuff with brain imaging, there's stuff with different testing, whether it's different treatment the client gets, different therapists they're with, because most of the time with brain injury cases, there's going to be components of anxiety, there's going to be components of depression, there's going to be components of post-traumatic stress disorder, and, you know, Every brain injury is different. Of all the cases of a handle, there hasn't been one client that's been the same as the other. Either the brain injury can affect them physically. They can have twitches. They can have things going on at their face. They can have things going on at their feet. It can affect them cognitively, thought processing, memory. It can affect their speech. It can affect them forgetting words. It can affect them not completing tasks. And then emotionally, crying, Personality uh, personality changes.
1: Oh, that must be so tough.
0: It's hard. I had a client once. He was, uh, it, it was, it happened. It was a bad truck crash in Kentucky and his, his fiance was killed in the crash. It was a horrible, horrible oh. situation, but, um, they were from Vegas, but living in Kentucky and he was 20, 21 years old and had a blue collar job doing fire sprinkler systems is what he installed and was an apprentice and was a very calm, jovial, joking, mild mannered guy. And due to the way his brain injury affected him, he got aggressive. He would push his dad against the wall. He would take, he would grab his sister and he'd pinch and twist her skin. He did the same thing to his mom and everyone was like, this is not our son or our brother. Like he was never like this before. So you have to really understand what a brain injury is and all the different types of brain injuries, all the different ways it can affect the client. And most of the time your clients they're not going to tell you. They're not they don't they won't want to admit that they cry. They don't want to tell you that they're depressed. They don't want to tell you that they can't do this job anymore.
1: That's why you want to talk to other people.
0: The more time you spend with them and if you don't treat it as a open case, but you treat it as this is this is, a, this is a human. This is a human that has a debilitating injury. It's something that will affect them the rest of their life. When the case is over, the brain injury doesn't go away. And, you know, you have to understand that when people are getting brain injuries now with research, especially if there is, um, and I had this with a client, if you have, you can see it on scans, but, you know, atrophy is shrinking. And if one side of the brain is shrinking f- at a faster rate than the other side of the brain, it's atrophy due to trauma, the symptom of which is dementia. So that's why studies, more and more studies are coming out that clients with traumatic brain injuries are at a higher risk for dementia, higher risk for Parkinson's, higher risk for suicide. And it, it's so you have to really understand how it's impacting them and prepare not just them, but case that I was supposed to be in trial this week that I'm here because the case settled last week, but we had to have a long, hard discussion with not just the client, but privately with the husband that she has atrophy. And that she's now on, I mean, think of this, she's in her mid sixties and her doctors just put her on the pre dementia medicine because they know it's not a matter of if she gets dementia, it's when it starts to manifest itself. That's all from the trauma of the crash.
1: How many TBI cases are there a year?
0: If you just look at the statistics from the Center for Disease Control or U.S. Department of Health, I mean, you know, there's millions of people that are getting traumatic brain injuries every year. And... The reason I'm glad we're doing this podcast and this interview is that is is to bring awareness really to lawyers because I don't think a lot of lawyers take the time to really investigate whether it's there or not. I've had so many cases that I've taken over from a lawyer or a lawyer brought me in or a lawyer was fired and the client hired me. And when I'm just talking to the client for a few minutes and I'm hearing stuff, I then just go through in my head the brain injury checklist of things I ask And they just, their eyes opened up and they're like, thank you. Like, you're the first person that's listened to me. I've been telling my old lawyer. I've been telling my doctor. Um, So it's there more than people think. And sometimes it's short term. Sometimes it's a brain injury that will resolve in three months or six months. And, you know, but most of my clients, because of the type of trauma, because you're dealing with crashes and stuff like that, brain injuries are going on for years. You know, and it's it's funny is that a lot of lawyers still, I think, buy into all the old arguments, all the old defenses of, well, if it's more than three months or six months, they're faking. I mean, it's now been three years since study came out that it used to be that over half the people with mild traumatic brain injuries resolved less than 12 months. Now they've studied thousands and thousands of TBIs and peer-reviewed medical literature. and Now they've determined more than half of individuals with mild brain injuries, mild traumatic brain injuries, still have symptoms, still have problems after a year. And those are the cases we see. I mean, if if it's a crash, if it's a fall, if it's, you know, an assault where, you know, there's a brain bleed, the skull's fractured, they can't walk, they can't talk, they can't do certain things. No one's questioning those. It's the ones that... Where they go to the ER and they do a head CT and there's no brain bleeding and there's no skull fracture and then they go and they do a regular MRI and it's normal. They always say, "Well, the scans were normal. Your, your client didn't have brain injury." Well, w- let's dig into that, right? W- what what type of machine was it? Was it one of the newer machines? Was it called a, th- a three Tesla machine?
1: Oh wow! So you really get deep. yeah.
0: You have to. I mean, you you, you if you're going to do this right, you have to understand, you know. Great example is, and sorry to geek out on you on this a little bit, but, you know, the, the the case I just resolved was a week after the wreck. Well, first, a couple things. The day of the wreck, she's in the ER and they do a head CT and she's got scalp laceration that required staples. But, you know, um, and they read the CT as normal. That's what the radiologist read the CT as normal. A week later she comes in they think she's having a stroke she's dizzy she's slurring her speech she's vomiting and they think she's having a stroke and they do a regular mri with the mindset with the lens of we need to rule out a stroke and the mri was read as normal for not having a stroke and they said we think it's due to just concussion symptoms two years go by we get a radiologist involved And we do proper brain imaging with a proper machine with, say, the art technology. And it's all about settings. You know, it's no different than if you go to the deli at your grocery and you want to get, you know, a pound of ham. They ask, how do you want sliced? Do you want thick? Do you want thin? Do you want shaved? Machines are the same thing. Do you want the slices thicker or thinner? Well, the thinner the slices, the more opportunity it has to pick up damage in the brain. The thicker the slices, it's going to miss stuff.
1: But why would they ever do thick?
0: Well, because a, it's the capability of the radiologist. It's the knowledge of the radiologist or the or the medical facility knowing what protocol they should do. And a lot of times they're doing mRIs for. People, you know, if they're in the ER or they're in a hospital facility or you go to an imaging facility, they're doing MRIs on all kinds of things, right? They're doing people for their spine and for their head and for their stomach and other areas. So they just keep the machine set one way and they just run it. A lot of times they don't know. And a lot of times they're not suspecting something worse. And they're like, we'll just do the standard. Let's just do an MRI. So this case I was telling you about, two years later, we repeat the MRI, but this time with a three Tesla machine that had 20 in the slices instead of five millimeters or one millimeter. Well what was the difference between the MRIs two years apart? The one a week after the wreck was a 1.5 machine, meaning the magnet's not as strong, not as clear, not as clear, and it was five millimeters. It only had three hundred and fifty images. The MRI that was done two years later, one millimeter slices, twenty six hundred images. So better machine, bare magnet, and
1: What did it show?
0: 14 brain bleeds.
1: And two years later, so I'm sure some of it must have healed, no?
0: So what happens is the, the scans show, you know, where the bleeds were. Um, it shows, it, and so basically you have, it just, it, they show up as, as black as dots um, on the type of, of scan. And when you see that, I mean, it's it's permanent. Like once once there's bleeding in the brain, it that, that that's dead. And then when you have damage to, it was all, every lobe of her brain. She had bleeds in her frontal lobe, parietal lobe, occipital lobe, temporal lobe. And that's just what we can see. What we know is with the millions and millions of axons in the brain, what we know is that whatever you can see, it's tip the iceberg. It's worse below. We just don't have the technology to see that deep. So the whole time the defense is like, well, it's it was it was normal. And they read and they go the C T and the ER was normal. When our radiologist looked at the CT, the actual films taken, there was a huge hematoma, huge bleeding in the brain, not from the scalp laceration, under the surface of the skull, but they read as normal. But you can see in the image a huge hematoma.
1: Why do they read it as normal? It's
0: the quality of the radiologist. Sometimes they're going for quick reads. It's not that they are incompetent. It's that a lot of times they don't have time. They're spending a couple of minutes on, it, on a read. Where if you have imaging done in the case and you have it done the proper way, that radiologist you hire can spend 30 minutes, an hour looking at the scans. Where in private, in practice, the actual treating radiologists at hospitals, at facilities, they're reading hundreds and hundreds of scans that day on all different things. So they're just doing quick reads and they're not taking the time to really understand what's going on. And things get missed. So not only do lawyers miss it on intake, do lawyers not really hear what the clients are saying, Doctors miss it.
1: Okay, wait. So let's back up. What advice would you give a lawyer? Like what is a good list of questions that they should ask either during intake or after they've taken on the case to figure out if TBI is a possibility?
0: That's a, that's a great question. You know, there's a couple things. There's um, there's a couple apps that are out there on concussion symptoms that were put out for athletes, you know, high school games, soccer games, football games, and and there's a couple apps you can get that are free.
1: Can you send me the apps and I'll put them in the show notes?
0: Absolutely. Awesome. Absolutely. And you can um, just look at the symptoms there. There's something called the Philadelphia Head Injury Questionnaire, and you can Google that. And that has a great intake of stuff. Um, but the questions are just simple stuff of, you know, what's your job like? What is your job how are you doing? Are you getting stuff done on time? Are you remembering appointments? Are you attending them? Um, it can be stuff like, how's your sleep? You know, what time do you usually go to bed? What time do you get up? Was that your nor- always been your normal sleep pattern? How do you feel during the day? Do you have energy? Do you have a drop in energy? Do you feel a little off? Do you feel like you have a fog? Do you feel that you're as sharp as before? Are you having to have people remind you of stuff? Are you having to write things down?
1: I'm starting to think I have a <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, like, it, it's just... There's just all the different and when you talk to the spouse or you talk to the children mom now goes and gets a coke out of the fridge and, and takes a drink and then 20 minutes later goes and gets coke out of the fridge and takes a drink An hour later gets coke out of the fridge and takes a drink and there's coke cans all over the house Forgetting that she'd already gone before
1: and you're telling me that lawyers are missing some of the stuff.
0: I think it's a product of Maybe not having the knowledge and not having the time, you know, it's why that, you know, I'm more of a boutique practice. I keep a small caseload. I have the time to sit and think about this. I have the time to look at certain records. I have the time to read up on brain injuries and new articles coming out. Next year, i will become the chair of the brain injury group for AAJ. That's um, awesome. Congrats. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So, I mean, it's just really reading this stuff. And I'll tell you, when I first got into the brain injury cases, it was overwhelming because there's so much medicine, there's so much to learn, and you kind of sometimes feel early on inadequate or, or, or you know, like I'm an imposter doing this stuff. But once you really get into it, you go to seminars, you're around lawyers that do this stuff, and then you start taking depositions of neuropsychologists and you start taking depositions of radiologists and you start just talking to your medical experts to educate yourself. Help me understand what does this mean? And that's why I do when I have you know, radiologists, I'll do a Zoom with them and have them put the imaging up and say, okay, tell me what I'm seeing here. You know, What is this? Why is that important? Could it be something else? No, why not? Well, because if it was this, the textbook sign is you know, here's what small vessel ischemic disease looks like. That would be in this area of the brain where this these spots are, that's only from trauma. It can only be from trauma. It's just learning it and then understanding it and taking the time with your clients and with the meds and with your doctors. And I think the best thing for lawyers to do is if you got a case that you think your client has a brain injury and you're a little unsure, you need to associate with someone. Bring someone in, and co-counsel with someone and they will teach you. I mean, I, when I get Brian cases, I help the lawyers that bring me in, help them understand the medicine, help them understand how to prove the case. Or there may be certain records that's, that I'm, I look at and say, you know what, we may not have a case here and here's why. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's time. I think it's just lack of knowledge. I don't delegate that. Right. I don't have my paralegal interview the client. I don't have an associate or a law clerk read the records. You got to do it yourself. I mean, and that, that's how you can really be up on that case and really understand that client's story is you got to dig into it yourself. And, you know, some lawyers just don't have the time or luxury to do that.
1: It's funny because you guys are lawyers and this like really goes into medicine.
0: If you're a physician and you're an orthopedic surgeon and you have a patient that complains of some heart problems or chest pain, you're going to refer them to a cardiologist. You, you just say, that's not my area. As lawyers... You know we can specialize in what area we do criminal domestic employment personal injury but as a personal injury lawyer i have to know accident reconstruction i have to know biomechanics and truck cases I have to know actual mechanical stuff maintenance of trucks and then you have to know neurosurgery neuropsychology radiology um, orthopedics whatever it is so we have to be experts in everything because, And we have to have some level of knowledge because if we're in a case and you're going to trial and you're not just using your lawyer hat arguing and advocating, but you have to intelligently put on witnesses or cross-examine defense witnesses on all those different areas... If you don't know it and take the time to study it, it's going to show. And all you're doing is hurting the client. It's a great responsibility we have. It's a high level of stress and pressure. It's also why it's good being in groups like this, talking to other people. So they everyone knows, hey, you're not in this alone. We all do this. We all understand this pressure. But there's a lot on our shoulders of what we have to know and competently know to successfully handle that case and help the client.
1: Tell me a little bit about your firm. I'm curious about... Uh, the firm and the structure and what type of cases you guys take in and how all that works? Because it sounds like you guys are very boutique.
0: Yeah, we are. My partner's Penny Hendy. She's up in our, we have two offices. So we have an office in Louisville, Kentucky, an office up in Northern Kentucky, a city called Fort Mitchell. a mile from Cincinnati. So that's ge- geography wise where we are. Penny mainly does in our firm, and she does a lot of med- medical negligence um, with a specialization in birth trauma cases. So really sad stuff, hard, hard. Yeah.
1: Just like you have to be an angel to be able to handle that.
0: Yep. And then uh, my other partner, Ron Johnson, Ron's with me in Louisville, Kentucky. Ron's known nationally. He's done a lot of mass tort cases. He's been co-lead counsel on three different mass torts. Most recently, the testosterone litigation that was in Chicago. That was seven years. Ron does a lot of that in class action and higher complex cases. Myself, mainly trucking brain injury. I'll do, uh, you know, I'll do premises cases. I'll do construction zone cases. I just actually uh, meet with a client next week on a potential chemical explosion case. So, you know, I'll do other serious injuries and wrongful death cases. Besides brain injury, you know, most of it, like I told you, is trucking. And back in um, 2018, the American Bar Association had approved a special board certification, accredited board certification for truck accident law. So it's a test and you have to fill out a whole matrix of questions and get approved. The test was six hours. It was not easy, but I became one of the first board-certified truck accident lawyers in the country.
1: How many are there?
0: I think we're up to about, we might be close to 30 or 40 now nationally.
1: That's still really small.
0: It's really, really small. And um, at least as of the recording this, I believe I'm still the only board-certified truck accident attorney in Kentucky.
1: I think the problem with that, though, is that the average person doesn't understand the, the difference. And I've always said, if anybody can crack the code on educating the average person like, they will blow up because people don't, I mean, people probably think you'll handle a divorce case. Like, they just don't, they don't get it, right? you know? Right. So everyone's like, I'm board certified or this, and I'm like, I get it, but like the average person just does not know what it means.
0: They don't, if we can figure out how to crack that code to get that education level.
1: I mean, it's tough with like the attention span. It's like, nobody wants to hear about, you know, I think it's on your intake team to really you know, educate whoever's calling if there is a case that you want, why it's it should be you. Right,
0: right. And that's a great, that's a great point. That's a great suggestion.
1: Wait, you're not doing that? Oh, we got to talk about intake. Well, where are we going to talk about intake? Everybody knows that it's like one of my biggest annoyances is intake because especially with what we do, if intake isn't done properly, you can't capitalize or people can't capitalize on what we do, right? Um, but that's like one of the number one rules of intake is... You have to sell yourself, right? So when someone calls, you want to be really careful with, hey, if it's a trucking case, then you want them to say that. If it's a TBI case, they want to explain why it should be you, right? If it's a birth trauma, why it should be your partner. That's really, really important. And you just want that in a call script that they're not reading, but that they have memorized, that they know this is what needs to be said. And then you have quality control to make sure that it is happening and you coach to that.
0: You know, that's, I mean, you bring up something important because I mean, you know, you see it, I know you do, but you know, a lot of lawyers were really good at the practice of law, the business of law, not so much. And it's a, it's a huge learning curve, but being around so many people learning all their systems and all their processes and you sit there and go, oh man, (laughs) I need to, I need to step my game up because it's a lot back to, again, as lawyers, not just, lawyers and knowing mess and knowing reconstruction but now knowing business and knowing marketing and knowing advertising and knowing customer service there's there's a lot our industry we have to know and deal with
1: I mean that's why I have this podcast because I feel like I get it you guys all went to law school and you want to practice law but if you own a law firm it like it is a business and there you have to manage that business right and there's so much that goes into it so much that goes into it. So I feel for you guys, especially the trialers, because it's like, well, I gotta run my business and I wanna be the best trialer that I can be. And you know, you're at events and you're teaching and you're getting board certified, but you still have a business. And it's like it's this crazy thing that I'm like, it's really hard to be really good at one thing. Right. Now we're asking you to be really good at two things.
0: My mentor who hired me in college um, always has saying that he learned from a mentor, that took him under his wing when he was a young lawyer and said the law is a jealous mistress. <laughs> it, you know, it, it pulls us and it's it's there's no such thing as being caught up. There's no such thing as having nothing to do. Every case at some point, you know, I could sit here and do something on every case I have right now and it would be dark. I mean, so there's you have to get in your mind when can I shut this down? When, I, when can I close my computer? When can I log off my system? When can I, you know, turn the lights off, leave the office and go do something else? Knowing in the back of our mind, because we're all type A, we're all OCD and we have our anxiety and our fear and, you know, knowing that it's okay. Tomorrow I can come back, but it's um, hard.
1: How do you balance that? Because I, I believe the first time we met, it was at a dinner at Sean Claggett's house. And you brought your wife and daughter. I'm never going to forget that you had them with you. So do you try to bring your family along when you travel? How do you balance?
0: I was in town for um, an organization, a trucking group I'm in. It was a boot camp. So I was on faculty to teach a boot camp on handling truck cases. And it so happened to coincide with my daughter's spring break. So she'd never been to Vegas. I'm like, hey, let's... Let's go to Vegas.
1: She's so cute.
0: Oh, thank you. Like, let's go to Vegas. And the idea was, we'll do a show one night, we'll do the pool the next day, show the next day, pool the next day. And the weather was awful. Got one pool day, which means it turned into shopping. Uh, <laughs> and after a couple of days of shopping, my daughter's like, "Can we move here? This is great." I said, "I can't afford you. I can't <laughs> afford to live here." But that was an example where sometimes when I can um, bring them, I-, I will. It's hard with. I mean, she just turned thirteen. Wow, you got a teen. Hazel's thirteen, and it's she's a. She's a spitfire, but uh, she's a sweet girl. But I can't always bring her because i mean school. And she also does competitive dance. So she's got dance practice. She's got, yeah, so it's, 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 it's a lot. Um, but how else do I unwind? I mean, I know that you have had Bob Simon on here a lot, uh, a cigar and a glass of bourbon. <laughs>
1: well, <laughs> that's you two must get along.
0: That and then um, I play tennis. So that helps me at least get my mind off something if I'm in a match for an hour and a half or two hours that that's all I'm thinking about. And then we have a we, we have a pool at the house, so just chill at the pool and just relaxing.
1: Pools are, th- oh my God, we just got one. We had never, because our kids are so little and I was like very unsure. But we moved to Miami, as you know, and I was like, no, we need a pool. It's too hot. It's the best thing in the world. I'm like, how did I wait this long to have a pool?
0: We have to find a work-life balance and we have to learn to step away. It's hard because we feel this constant pressure of making sure I'm, I'm handling this case right for this client and also a financial pressure of making sure that, you know, am I going to hit what I need to do this year that so we're we're profitable and that we're, you know, that, 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 that we're doing well, that we can continue the lifestyle that we have. So it's this pressure just pounding and beating on you. Um, and some lawyers do a bad job getting away from it. Some lawyers do a bad job continuing to spend time with their family. Um, some have have cracked the code and have learned to do it well. And I don't, th- I don't think I'm perfect. Yet. I'm getting better. But I had an experience years ago at a firm before, is that where I am now, where there wasn't the appreciation for work-life balance. They, you couldn't turn it off. They felt the job was 24 hours a day. And, uh, you know, it took a toll on me, took a toll on my family and realized, you know what? It's unhealthy. Need to need to get out, need to go, need to do something better be more in control of it. So that's what I think we should be better at. The message to lawyers is, you know, you can do this. You can take time off. You need to make time for yourself, time for your family. Otherwise, you'll just, you'll crash and burn.
1: It's tough. I mean, we struggle with it as business owners where we're like, all right, we need to like slow down a bit here. But it's tough because I think when you care, you're like obsessive, right? And you're like, I almost feel guilty when I'm not working, you know, like. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for this having me. This was really me. fun. I really
0: appreciate this. Me this too. is great.
1: Yes. This thank is you great. For last thing in. I'm
0: doing, then I'm going to go to the airport and fly back.
1: And you saved me from going out last night because I I wanted to be, you know, energetic for you this morning. That's what I'm here
0: for. Yeah. That's what I'm here for.
1: I appreciate it. Excellent. All right. Thank you, Jay. Okay. Thank you, Maria. Thank you to Jay for everything he shared with us today. If you found this story valuable, please share it with someone you want to see succeed. Subscribe so you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review. It goes a long way to help others discover the show.